Welcome back to part two of Nothing Never Happens, the Radical Pedagogy podcast, and our interview with Davarian L. Baldwin, author of In the Shadow of the Ivory Tower, How Universities Are Plundering Our Cities. In part two, Davarian is going to take us into his classes and show us how he uses his research in his pedagogy. What does it look like when Professor Baldwin walks into his class and like is teaching about these things? Um, I'm, I'm interested in kind of both levels and all that's in between. I'll mm. just throw it to you and we'll, we'll ask follow up. Well, like I said before about the ways in which universities claim meta, in a meta way, their, their mission to serve the world's most difficult problems. That is the mission of universities that we are out here trying to, trying to solve the world's most difficult problems. And therefore, for me, it's that if, you, if that's the claim, um, then why wouldn't you want to engage in the problems in your own backyard? Number one. Number two, um, for decades, my own institution, Trinity College, um, it, it's, it's a, it was a college of the 1%. It was a, it was a feeder school to Wall Street. Um, it, 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 it was stuck in a poor brown city, Hartford, Connecticut, a capital city. And at one point it was thinking about leaving the city like other school, urban schools that are of elite um, pedigree have thought about leaving their cities um, during the urban crisis of the 60s and 70s, all the way up to the 90s. Um, so that was their approach for decades. But then as the liberal arts market closed or shrunk and public schools began to create honors colleges because the the the, the kind of the gnome de plume of liberal arts colleges that we offer intimate small class sizes and, and intimate contact and intimate service. But liberal arts colleges say, we can do the same thing for a third of the price. So what's your identity, liberal arts colleges? So then after decades of turning their back on the idea of being in Harford, liberal, uh, Trinity College rebranded itself as a liberal arts college in a capital city. Um, and so I take that brand serious. I take it as more than just simply a brand. And so as we have moved, as the country, as the world has moved into the urban century, that we have now entered the point where there are more people living in what we consider to be in a broad sense, urban environments as compared to rural environments. Um, that means that our notions of citizenship that we colleges claim that we're training students for citizenship, a key component of that is an urban citizenship. What does it mean to think in an urban way? What does it mean to think in a way where people around you will not be like you? What will it mean to think about a, a world where, where you're going to be in more dense environments, where your environment might change uh, at a stamp of a finger? What does it mean to have an urban citizenship? Um, and so I take my work, I take this project as being a continuation, a manifestation of that ethos that we're not just building we claim we're not just building uh, future workers, but we're, 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 we're creating global citizens. And so then what does it mean to have an urban literacy? What does it mean to be able to understand our locations when urban and suburban and rural, and not just urban, but urban, suburban, and rural, in, in more broadly in spatial terms? Because in many regards, and I teach a class called Race and Urban Space. And so space has become a colorblind way to discuss race in both positive and pejorative ways. Terms like ghetto, property values, blight, affordable housing, mixed use versus single family zoning, terms like neighborhood character. These are the ways we talk about race without talking about race. And so I dive deep into these concepts and their uh, policy and racial and, and, and political roots 
as a way to talk about race. I get students, um, and, the, and the mantra of that class is decisions were made. That you live in a certain environment. A lot of my students come from extremely homogeneous white environments. And I'm saying, well, how did you get there? And they'll say, well, we can't talk about, I can't talk about race in my own hometown because it's all white. I say, well, number one, white is a race. Um, number two, we live in a multiracial environment. I'm sure in your neighborhood, you have a Chinese restaurant, uh, a karate shop, uh, um, Indian food. You have a multi multiracial food work. Um, uh, who works back there? Who works in the kitchens? Um, I'm sure you have people that do uh, lawn care. Are they white? Probably not. So how did your town or, or neighborhood become a place where the people that work for you can work there, but not live there? So we dive into zoning laws and, and the placement of garbage cans and bus stops and sidewalks and lighting and all of these as decisions that are being made to produce a certain environment. And it can be in the name of property values, but we delve into the ways in which notions of property values have roots in racial homogeneity that organizations like the National Association of Real Estate Board from their founding created a market for themselves, created a need for themselves in a, in a marketplace where there was no need for real estate agents. Individual homeowners could have just engaged in, in the transfer of property amongst themselves. But the explicit way in which the real estate um, business came into being was that, well, we control all white neighborhoods and that we cannot just sell you a home. We can sell you a home in a white neighborhood where we can protect that not only will your home, but the homes around your home will be all white and that will secure your property values because we're arguing that property values are tied to racial homogeneity. And so we go back to the history and do that work and come to the present. So thereby today when uh, uh, former President Trump is saying in, in not so coded, racially coded ways that you know um, zone up zoning for mixed use in suburban neighborhoods is going to put white suburban women white suburban um, suburban moms under siege um, he's being pretty explicit about what you know he's he's saying the quiet parts out loud um but i'm trying to give students tools to say that even if it's somebody not as crass as trump but when you talk about you know zoning and neighborhood character how is that about race and how has that become the way to talk about schools and 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 uh neighborhood districting zoning neighborhood character blight urban renewal and revitalization? How are all these issues, discussions of race and power and class? And so in the class, what we do for, you talk about the pedagogy, what we do is we have a three-part family landscape paper. The first iteration of the family landscape paper is the students offering kind of a chamber of commerce walk through their town. This is where the stores are. This is where this, I went to school. This is the kind of jobs that people are engaging in. This is the kind of housing stock in my neighborhood, et cetera. The second iteration is to look, examine the policies that produce that landscape. So um, what, what, what are the zoning policies? Is it, is it, is it large lot zoning? Is it are there setbacks? Um, is it single family only? Is it, is it neighborhood, are they neighborhood schools or regional schools? Um, we look at, um, is it primarily residential or is it commercial residential and why? Is there industrial nearby? Um, we, we come to the realization that there, there are only three major ways in which a city or town can fund itself. It's through uh, uh, property taxes, through having industry, or through public aid. 
So which is the one that your school, which your town, and primarily the fluent white, white neighborhoods are funded through property taxes, which then means that they bank on maintaining the neighborhood character, which usually means racial homogeneity um, without even saying it anymore, because the property values are so high that residents of color who couldn't get access to these neighborhoods because of, in the past, restrictive covenants and racist zoning laws that basically said you couldn't be Black and be in these neighborhoods, you don't even need it anymore because they can't afford to be in these neighborhoods because uh, when the neighborhoods and the housing was subsidized uh, um, for whites and created basically a welfare system for whites, um, the property values of homes have increased by 14 times. A home that was worth $20,000 now could be now worth, you know, half a million or even 1.5 million. And so it becomes an, an economic issue, but it has racial roots. And so we, we delve into that in the second paper. And then in the third paper, just to be clear that everything, because some of my students, you know, because of the moment, everything's racist, everything's racist. And I'm like, no, uh, or the, on the other side, you can't identify racism without identifying intent. Did the person use the N-word? Did they explicitly say, I don't want black people in my neighborhood for it to be racist? So we say, okay, what then are the racial consequences of the spatial practices that made your neighborhood the way that it is? So even if there isn't racial intent, what are the racial consequences or outcomes that produce racial differences because of the spatial practices that your, your, your neighborhood or town engaged in over the course of the last 20 to 30 or 40 years. Um, and I have some, you know, I have some students that grow up in extremely wealthy Manhattan co-ops and, and don't even think about the fact that co-ops are one of the last bastions of, that can be, are allowed to be like explicitly racist um, without talking about race. They can make, they get to make decisions about who can and who cannot join the co-op just simply based on character, the character of an applicant. Um, and, and so it's, 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 it's always a learning experience. It's always amazing to me as these students go through the process because it then becomes um, an academic treatise that allows them to investigate their own biography. And my white students and some black students are used to engaging in others in, in their in, in, in classes. So what does it mean when you become the object of inquiry without even knowing it? So sometimes at the end of the class, by the, by the time you get the third paper, students get outraged because like, wait, you made me study myself. You made me examine myself. I don't like that. I'm uncomfortable with that. Um, and, and other students see it as pro profoundly revelatory and, 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 and actually some people say, you know, life changing. Um, and, and some students go on to become urban planners or work for, you know, work for the city, uh, the board of education in their cities and towns, wherever they end up in Manhattan or wherever they end up. Other, other students, you know, go on to work on Wall Street or Madison or, or on Madison Avenue and, you know, in advertising, what have you. But this gives them a level of urban literacy that I hope will alter or impact their sense of themselves in an increasingly urban world. It's not about career development. It's not a, even though they do get skills, they learn how to read policy. They do work with GIS. They do skill. We do skill development stuff, but the goal here is not about skills. It's about gaining a sense of literacy and how to navigate and exist in the world in a more humane and just way. Oh, thank you for that. Um, I think autoethnography is, is the core mm. um, and that's just so helpful. But you know, there, you're doing this in, in a university that markets itself mm. in a certain way. And mm. uh, the, 
the most dominant way these days is through diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, offices and yeah. elevating those offices to vice presidential positions, um, having um, black and brown people in those mm -hmm. positions that come out of a corporate business background often. Um, and so, you know, the, the face uh, of the university looks like, <clears throat> oh, we're doing a land acknowledgement Right. Yeah, renaming human resources, people and culture. Mm -hmm. you know, there, there are a lot of different code words for um, maintaining the kind of um, uh, systemic racism. That, yeah. Yeah, yeah, we have great that. community engagement programs for the yes. communities that we locked out of our campus. Mm -hmm. Yes, And that's mm -hmm. the thing I want to get to next is you only mentioned Campus Compact once. Um, mm residents forming that, but I wanted to get your opinion on the directions that um, these, you know, a lot of community engagement programs that are more, you know, charity volunteerism versus the ones, and this is, you know, to take us into something more hopeful because, you know, quite frankly, I was getting chills when you were telling these huge universities doing these, you know, horrendous things and, and expanding their footprint and just knocking over, um, you know, uh, the local people. And it, because it relates even to my small college, you know, we do it on a, a smaller level, but if you're the person it's happening to, it's, it's you know, uh, it's an abuse it's of no, your- no less significant, that's right. Yeah. So there are, you know, good examples that you mentioned in the book, mm -hmm. um, you stumbled upon um, mm -hmm. Canada and, and other places. So could you, Talk about what you discovered that worked that gave you hope that um, yeah. this behemoth could be not, maybe not brought under control, but there are examples out there that mm -hmm. uh, we should be looking to. Yeah. And, and not like I tend to do sometimes wallow around in the <laughs> despair. Well, first of all, I want to say that when I talk about the word abolition, when it comes to policing, I apply that to the university as well. That we need to create an abolition university. I don't explore this in much detail in the book, but it's something that's been, the book has generated in conversations with on the ground community organizers and, and faculty, et cetera, is that we need to develop an, and, the, and the things that I saw and the thing I recommend, I now move it towards in service to this notion of an abolitionist university. It doesn't mean abolish the university. It means free the university from its current constraints and ways of thinking and doing. So the resources, the infrastructure in terms of the buildings and uh, the uh, the teaching facilities, we don't want to get rid of that. When I talk to residents all over the country, they want those things, but they must be reorganized in a way that services the broader campus community. And by that, I mean the entire city or neighborhood, because they all have a hand in making these entities and these institutions possible. And so when we talk about com campus compact or community engagement, I go into detail in certain ways, um, talking about how community engagement, urban engagement have been deployed uh, to push forward land banking and upscaling commercial development for students and faculty. The language utilized by real estate, like, you know, uh, uh, people being deployed that had good intentions. Uh, but you can have two entities within the same university. And this is another thing, universities are not monolithic. You can have uh, the community engagement office and the real estate office using the same language, but for very different purposes. 
and, and I've seen that. I, might, I talk up in detail about how this happened at UPenn. Um, but even at Trinity, urban engagement has meant building a downtown campus, which has primarily been organized around career development, um, a partnership with the inf uh, information technology consulting firm called InfoSize as a way to signal to parents that we have a feeder system for your kids to get jobs and job training and job placement. Um, the downtown campus has been able, has, has focused on trying to secure uh, a greater uh, share of the professional certificate market for those um, leadership programs and professionals who want to engage in, um, you know, other kinds of retraining. So that's what urban engagement in our downtown campus has primarily meant. We have an urban, uh, 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 an urban uh, a community action lab, but some faculty that I've spoken to, administrators who were part of that at its inception, said that in some ways, and they and they were they they remain anonymous for for obvious reasons. They said that that was primarily cover for these other more corporate, you know, that 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 action lab is doing great work, but the bigger work of the downtown campus is securing a greater market share of certificate programs of feeding students into city hall internships and and central business district internships it's a it's a feeder it's a career development feeder system so so you know i don't just talk about upenn or harvard or what have you i just talk about my own institution and what role they play in and and you know reinforcing the the uh, uh bastardization of these terms like community engagement and urban engagement but solutions, uh, alternatives, what does it mean to build out an abolitionist university? Um, some of this is contemporary, some of it's historical. I spent some time talking to Henry Lewis Taylor Jr., um, this amazing uh, Black Marxist urban planner um, who was brought to um, the University of Buffalo in the 1980s. And, they, and, and the University of Buffalo had moved his main campus to the suburbs, but it still had an urban footprint. And they asked him to reimagine the urban, the downtown campus, what became now the second campus. And so as a black Marxist, he said, oh, we need, we need to turn this into a commons. <laughs> we need to, uh, you know, yes, do some landscaping that connects the city uh, to the campus. Um, we need to open every, every resident in the area should have a membership card so they can use the facilities and the gym and the, um, the, the concert halls and the classrooms and the food service halls. Um, there must be housing so that low-wage uh, uh, staff can 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 be afford to to live to work where they to live where they work. Excuse me. Um, and the, the the university administrator said, "Oh, we didn't we didn't mean that. Uh, we'll we'll do the landscaping and we'll create housing for faculty only, and we'll offer memberships at a discount rate to the gym, but that's about it." So that's an example of what could have been, right? Uh, uh, when students took over J Crane Junior College in Chicago on the Chicago West Side and converted it and turned it into Malcolm X Community College, um, they fired um, the off-duty Chicago police officers and hired a Black-owned um, um, unarmed security team to, to um, police the campus. Um, that's what's possible. That's from the 60s. So 68, 69, Malcolm X Community College, 1980s, uh, uh, Henry Lewis Taylor's notion of commoning. Um, and I don't know, I know the word commoning is now in vogue, but it's not new, right? Just to point that out. Um, and then also, um, as I was going around talking about this work, I was confronted with um, Winnipeg, University of Winnipeg, and, and, and their engagement with a, a different vision of sustainability. 
Um, I mean, we might be running for time. I'm, I apologize. I'll go quick. Um, so, and, and their and their vision sustainability was that saying that sustainability cannot just be environmental. It must also be economic, political, and um, social. And their approach was not just simply um, benevolent. They understood that they were primarily a commuter school, that students from the suburbs came in, went to class, and left. But in the 1990s, their, their, their population exploded from 6,000 uh, students to 10,000 students. And a large portion of that was indigenous students and low-income and, and low students that surrounded the campus. And so they understood that in order to secure these students, to maintain, to be sustainable, we're going to have to figure out ways to keep these residents and their families, these non-traditional students. These are students that were older, that had families. And so sustainability had to be reimagined in order for them to survive economically. So it wasn't just benevolent. This was, there was some self-interest here, but this shows that self-interest doesn't have to be, self-interest can be humane. Self-interest can be revolutionary. It can be commenting. It can, it, it can be something besides just simply corporate interest. And so in order to do this work, they realized that they had to engage or build out mixed income housing from premium that would pay for the housing all the way down to rent geared to income. And that except for the premiums that had um, balconies, all they got an exemption from the provincial government to be able to make all of the units the same. So when you go into these units, you can't tell whether you're getting, there is no mixed, there is no uh, affordable rate unit. They're all interchangeable. So that, that transformed the morale of people. Um, these you uh, in some of the housing, there's dorm style housing on the top, and there's townhouse housing on the bottom. Um, they got the student government to increase um, the child their childcare facilities by forty, so that residents who were non students could gain access to affordable childcare. Um, they uh, most universities have one of the North American multinational food service companies, Sedesco, uh, Marriott, uh, Aramark. Um, you know, whatever, uh, um, all those companies, they have one of those. They kick them out, number one, because they produce bad food. <laughs> number two, they produce bad food at a, at a ridiculous rate. And so they created their own food service company called Diversity Foods. Now, continuing the sustainability ethos of the college, um, of the university, 65% um, of their raw material food service, food materials, come from local family farms from within a hundred kilometer radius. Every food preparation stadium, station has a, is, it has a compost bin. Um, they take their uh, cooking oil and send it out to be converted into biodiesel. And I just found out that the um, Chicago, University of Chicago, I'm not University of Chicago, um, uh, University of Loyola in Chicago, that their entire bus system runs on, uh, on cooking oil. So, that's a that's a, it's a you know that's a U.S. story. But to go back to Winnipeg, so so they do this on the in, on the labor side, um, sixty five percent of their workers come from what they consider to be hard to employ uh, communities. So LGBTQ, um, uh, new Canadian, which what we call you know immigrant, um, uh, recently recently incarcerated, um, single mothers. Um, that sixty five percent of their employees come from that community. And they have shifted or have begun to engage in a, in a practice of profit sharing for their workers. So when people say, and I give this all the time with arms folded, critique, 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 what are the solutions? 
Well, these are some of the solutions. We know in, in Buffalo, when the University of Buffalo Medical Center was encroaching on the, the, the fruit, the historically black fruit belt neighborhood, that property values were rising above the means of the long-term residents. I spoke to a woman who was a nurse and was forced to become an activist because she grew up going to the fruit belt neighborhoods as a, as a child with her family. And now she was a nurse coming back and she said, I'm a gentrifier. I need, I need to change these, these conditions. And so she began to fight for a community land trust whereby the residents would control the land and they would thereby then you could buy the land at a discounted rate but then, or subsidized rate, but then you sold it and you couldn't flip the land. You couldn't sell, you couldn't, you had to maintain an affordable rate for selling the land back. The land is owned by the community land trust. You can make some profit, but the profits get passed on to the trust, not to individual homeowners so that the next person can afford the house after you. And that's a, under the acknowledgement that you were able to afford the house initially because it was subsidized. Well, that woman went on that woman's name is India Walton, and she is now going to be arguably the first, one of the first socialist mayors of a major city in America. She's going to be the mayor of Buffalo. So there's that story. Um, during the pandemic, uh, the University of Chicago was taking its unused food and converting it into meals for healthy meals for communities in need. Why did it take the pandemic to do that? Um, the Yale University was shamed by the University of New Haven, a much more modest school of taking, because during the pandemic, students were on campus. So they were housing um, uh, essential workers on campus. So that got big publicity and Yale was doing nothing with this $32 billion endowment. And so they got shamed into, doing, into following the lead of a more modest school and doing the same thing. But I say, why isn't there worker housing on campuses all the time? From a sustainability standpoint, what would it mean whereby black, poor black and brown women not having to commute to campus, why not have affordable mixed housing like in Winnipeg for campus workers? Um, so these are just a couple of things. Or oh, another one, is, for example, is um, pilots. So in the face of tax exemptions, certain schools, certain communities have fought for payments in lieu of taxes to help shore up the budgets. Um, in 2012, Boston, uh, the city of Boston engaged in a partnership with Boston area schools to argue that if you are a nonprofit with $15 million um, worth of property, um, could you, again, asking, could you pay 25% of what you would have to pay if your land was properly assessed? None of the schools were doing that, not even 25%. They were paying whatever, even with this agreement, they were not paying that amount. So now there is a, uh, a bill at the state house to make this a state law that all nonprofits that have more than $15 million or more property in the state of Massachusetts would be required to pay 25% of, of, the, of the assess of what they would have to pay if the land was properly assessed. So um, Wayne State University, a modest, modest school uh, um, in 2019 announced that if you graduate from Detroit Public Schools and you get accepted into Wayne State University, we will pay for your tuition. So, so you know, again, community colleges, urban schools, just embarrassing these endowment-rich public and private universities with alternatives and options about how to do universities better. These building blocks for creating an abolitionist university, taking the same resources and reorganizing them in ways that imagine that campuses and universities are neighbors 
to the cities from which they benefit culturally, socially, and most importantly, economically. So because these universities are already interconnected with these communities, why not build out models that imagine and acknowledge these relationships in a more just and equitable as compared to an extractive way? Because the benefit of seeing these schools as a public good and as Ivy Tower allows them to engage and pervade these, these communities and extract from them without any scrutiny. But to have an abolitionist framework would say, we acknowledge the relationships that already exist, now let's shore up and make more equitable the outcomes. I really appreciate that answer because as someone who also gets the, well, where is your source of hope? Critique, 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 critique. I sometimes get the, like, I mean, I think feel like we could have a whole other episode that's like what makes necessary the speech act of I'm not against universities or I'm not against X in order to make a critique. Like what, right. what's the, like, what's the autoethnographic or sort of like history of like the space that makes necessary those sorts mm. of um, disclaimers at the top or the bottom of any well, interview well, or... I always say to people, like, you know, if, if you are facing inhumane conditions in your community or at your workplace, do you see it as illogical to, to try to make them better? Right. And they say, right. uh, well, yeah, of course. I say, well, why wouldn't I, why wouldn't we do the same thing with the university? So I, I totally agree with you. There's yeah. something about the speech act that makes the, the, the continual qualification to say, I like universities, but... Mm -hmm. So I just wanted to point that out, but go ahead. You're saying. Yeah, no, no, that's so right. Um, and one of the things, and sometimes I'm like, wow, like you're asking me to do exactly the sort of overcoming narrative that I'm trying to critique right now. Mm. Or I'll say, there's a list. There's actually a list of demands from my union right now that you, mm. that, uh, or, you know, this other worker union, and maybe you all should just stop hiring adjuncts in your department. Like that's maybe right. like, don't like refuse to like, so, but so it's less a, sometimes I think that the critique, critique, critique thing is, a front for just like not wanting to do the many, many things oh. that are already visible and latent and kind of imminent to our existence. Like University of New Haven is doing a lot of things that Yale University is not, but with a lot fewer resources. Like That's Yale right. just doesn't want to house people. That's it's right. not that it's not that they didn't think it of it before. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and and just to continue off of that, I get all the time, you know, what would New Haven look like without Yale University? Right. That's the question. Like it would be a, sh a shithole, basically, as people were saying. Um, if they it say it would be Bridgeport, which is so racist. And right. Like, oh, oh, people say, oh, you're right. They do yeah. say that. Yeah. And my point is that, but Yale is what it is because of New Haven. Right. Right. And, and, and you are basically endorsing a feudal relationship that this entity should be able to extract the wealth from this community and then make decisions about how and how it will not offer money back in the form of a Thanksgiving turkey drive or a cleanup program. Yeah. That's anti-democratic. This is public money and public resources. These communities should have the right to make decisions about what they could do with their money. Yeah. Right? And, and, and what would Yale be without these public dollars, without this money? If, you, if, if a university wants to be a business, and I'm not saying that we do a great job with, business, with corporate America either, but if it wants to be a business, then engage with it on those terms. But most importantly, and this is my main point, is that from even from a selfish standpoint, the current model of seeing, of being blind to how universities function, they're not going to survive. We're already seeing with the pandemic university. So if universities don't do a better job of investing in the communities that surround them, they're going to die. In my estimation, the only way out, for except for these schools that have billion-dollar endowments, 
and that will and, and their change will have to come from public public scrutiny. But for a lot of these schools that are in the middle tier, the only way they're going to survive is by offering a model of sustainability that includes the, the communities um, that surround them, that, that, that they share space with. That's the only way they're going to survive in terms of the Pell eligible students, in terms of land control and land sharing, in terms of thinking about things like community, like urban farming, uh, thinking about things like water resource sharing. Um, that's the only way they're going to survive. And, and, and I'm quite emphatic about that. Yeah. Yeah. And it, well, it really flips the logic of we need to like cut more costs and dispossess more people to survive. And so I think mm -hmm. that's a great place to kind of wrap up. We've, we've, we don't want to, speaking of exploitation, we don't want to exploit your time. <laughs> um, we usually end. Okay. So I'll, I'll say, I'll ask these two questions together. The first is you should always, of course, feel free if there's anything you haven't said that you wanted yeah. to say that we haven't asked you, like, throw that right in. We'll do our tradition of going around and saying what we're reading, listening to, watching, consuming, otherwise like kind of taking in that we would like to present back and give to others that is inspiring us right now, whether that has, to, or maybe it's just killing time, lots of trash TV mm. during this little segment. Um, whether or not it has to do with anything we talked about today. Do you have anything that's that you're like vibing yeah. out to right now? Um, for years, I was a soccer coach um, and my kids all play soccer. Um, and so I just been really enjoying and and we talk about sport as being a refuge from the real world. And it's just so profoundly not that it's like a, it's such a magnifying glass on the world as it actually exists in ways that we don't want to discuss in polite conversation. And so watching the World Cup and the Olympics, especially first, first the Euros um, over the summer and talking with friends on Twitter and other places, the degree to which uh, <laughs> soccer and, and the Euros in particular and world soccer is, is an expression of the afterlives of colonialism. Mm -hmm. And so all the anxieties around like the Spanish team and Adama Traore, who was Malian, but has a Spanish citizen or the French team that just won the World Cup. And I was in France right after they won and there were posters on, on the Metro that would say, you know, in English, uh, French national team question mark because in all these pictures, these little brown men, because the whole team is like from the from the colonies, mm -hmm. and so just talking about that and just talk how to talk about the afterlives of colonialism and power through uh, European national teams and the anxieties around what the Swedish team looks like now. Is it really Swedish and and what's happening in France and how other countries are on a slower trajectory to become browner and browner and actually become better. <laughs> on the on the pitch <laughs> so and so there was a huge controversy a couple of years ago when i think i can't remember who made the joke that you know africa when when france won the, the world cup people saying africa won the world cup africa won the world cup and how people were extremely you know the french being about liberté égalité fraternité we don't see race how french were so incensed by that conversation so there's that also i've been so inspired by watching the olympics of you know in the the face of the attack on black women so Shikari Rich, Shikari, uh, uh, um, Neka. Naomi Osaka, Simone Biles, uh, Castor Semena, mm -hmm. um, you know, the, 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 the gender checks, okay. the gender test. And mm -hmm. I, I just love how like Simone Biles just reached just to just yesterday or today bowed out of the team events for her meant for her mental health. Yeah. And just all the vitriol that's been spewed upon them. It's so racially and gender coded. Um, oh, you're being selfish. You are looking out for the team. Uh, you're acting like a superstar diva. And yeah. just, there's been an important shift, especially with Naomi Osaka 
and Simone Biles and others are just saying with her, with, you know, Bogdan the French Open, Black women just saying, you know, my mental health and well-being is more important than this game. Um, I just love that. I love, as a former athlete, and and there's a there's a, there's a there's some of an impulse to say okay you make sacrifices for the for for your sport et cetera et cetera but also just saying this is a job this is a, this is entertainment and 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 I'm not gonna get lost in all this as a person as a human being and mm-hmm. my well being matters I just I love that and I hope it sets a, a new trend of how we um, hierarchize value mm-hmm. um, in, in a lot of our and, and just work and you know our work lives I mean as academics we know that. You know, because of the nature of the work that we do, you could be doing this work all the time. It, mm-hmm. it, it is so pervasive. So the things that we all probably love to do, bookstores and coffee shops, not you know, academia is so powerful that that's that's become work time. That's not refuge. I mean, it just happens the very things that we like to do are the things that drew us to academia. But the rub of academia is that now it's incorporated into our work. And so we understand that. So making space, carving space, saying no, um, acts of refusal um that's another big term in abolition work um it's really been powerful to me seeing it on the high profile so-called um asocial uh stage that is sport Mm -hmm. um seeing it play out especially by black women um that's very powerful to me well that's great that's great (laughs) tina your turn (laughs) well if the last uh four years of a certain presidency and the pandemic weren't enough. Mm. I, uh, I had to do some preparation for a radio show on, um, it was a doomsday series. Mm. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> apocalyptic culture. The color of the apocalypse right yeah. now. Mm. And they wanted me to talk about doomsday preppers. <laughs> and so, yeah, the, the whole gamut and continuum of those from the ultra religious right to, um, the hyper rich uh so like survival like, pods and things like that or yeah, whatever the, the survival luxury condos uh, mm-hmm. going to the moon or mars oh mm-hmm. yeah the yeah mm-hmm. that's the whole bezos plan right yeah oh yeah <laughs> and, and the title of helen one of helen caldicott the anti-nuclear activist book miss missile envy mm-hmm. was, that's right <laughs> really apparent there well, everybody, but, everybody on twitter was like why does this rock look like a penis yeah so the whole doomsday prepper thing and, and driving through south georgia with billboards that said q, mm, q, and q. Uh, yeah mm-hmm. and, and small towns yeah very mm-hmm. frightening mm-hmm. And, and so how do we face that apocalypse you know to to create a more hopeful world so yeah that and then reading this wonderful little book on uh quantum theory oh. uh, by carlo rovelli uh called okay. Logo land okay. making sense of the quantum revolution mm. to, to think about you know the really i mean i'm not a scientist but he puts it in terms that are sort of dreamlike and kind of understandable mm-hmm. uh, of you know what this world is made of that we should care for um mm. the possibilities um that that all of that science can lead us to so right yeah, so that's what i've been doing these days mm. i would also just say in that context i would encourage you people to listen listening to my uh press mate uh shonda prescott weinstein's the disordered cosmos oh. is an is an amazing book that talks about and she is a a, a, a physics and astronomy professor and okay. talking about dark matter and the cosmos as a site for 
racial and gender and queer possibility. Um, and so that might be interesting in line with what you're talking about um, with that little yeah. book you mentioned. So I think about that too. But I mean, you know, I'm, I'm so hopeful. I'm so, when I look at the, and hopefully you can see in the book, when I look at the past examples of like students at the city university, like, you know, mm -hmm. advocating for open admissions, not just free tuition and, you know, activists and students today with cops off campus, you know, saying that we're going to repurpose um, dorms and cafeterias for the unhoused. Um, you know, I'm just so hopeful about what can be done with these spaces that they can actually be what they what they claim to be mm -hmm. in a way that maybe the administrators, the current stewards of these spaces, could not even imagine. But what would it mean to to let to be actual neighbors and let the environment, the residents of the environment uh, dictate or shape the ambitions, the mission, the plan, the directives of these entities with all their amazing resources and capacity, what kind of new world could we build if that was allowed to fully flourish? Um, yeah, I'm, I, I believe in that with all my heart. This is why I'm, I was drawn to the life of, of the university. Yeah, <clears throat> that one of those parallel universes that we hope exist or we mm. can make exist. Mm -hmm. So Lucia, what have you been reading, watching, ingesting? I woke up at 1.30 a.m. to watch women's basketball. Ah. Um, even though I'm sort of like, I have, I'm, you know, afterlives of colonialism are, <laughs> and American exceptionalism, not afterlives, present lives, yeah. are are playing out in mm -hmm. the women's basketball scene right. and add to the list of wronged Black women in the Olympics, Neko Gumake, who was left off the U.S. Olympic team, and I'm still mm. mad about that. Mm. Um, and have some why, why was she? What, was, uh, oh, was some kind of like dispute or argument oh, or something it, like that? The, the, well, you know, it's you know, it's shady when the rationale keeps changing. But right. this is she's the only MVP to have never been selected for the U.S. Mm. Olympic team. She was the literal MVP of the qualifying mm. tournament mm. Um, for mm. which she played for the U.S. and she also was the head of the players union there and we go. <laughs> through that, that collective bargaining agreement um, mm -hmm. that was unprecedented sort of adjustments right. um, to make it, to have more equitable lives for the powerful women workers who are, who are in that league. Mm -hmm. um, not to mention like helping drive the Warnock victory in Georgia, That's like right. all of the things that they did. And, and the black lives matter movement lives all across. Matter, yeah. Everything. And, mm -hmm. and, white white women from Connecticut who had already been to multiple Olympics before that and who were towards the ends of their career were selected instead on a very Yukon stat. I'm from mm. Tennessee originally, so I'm yep. not yep. we're in oh, the Gino um, regime, right? The Gino yeah. regime. Well Gino's on the selection committee as mm -hmm. is, you know, so Anyway, um, but then the listeners, you know, may 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 not know this, uh, but the so NECA gets left off the team. And then is like, well, screw this. Um, she has Nigerian citizenship. Her parents are Nigerian. All of her, her sisters, two of whom are basketball players, Shanae and Erica, they end up getting approved to play for Nigeria. But then the international, the Olympic like board, yeah, which IOC. we know is the IOC, which is yeah. disqualifying. Oh my God. Theory, Talk about auto autocratic, authoritarian awful. in so many ways. So many ways ends up 
um, saying that she's not eligible to compete for Nigeria because she's already spent too much time in the United States. You can only have one nation of loyalty. Mm-hmm. So the sort of nationalism politics playing oh, out. Yeah. I watched oh, yeah. the, the so this morning at 1.30 a.m., um, the U.S. women played Nigeria in the Olympics. Oh. Nigeria lost only by nine points. Yeah. So I want to say a like moral victory and... Mm-hmm you know, down with the Connecticut empire, which is also a, yep. a sort of seat of U.S. nationalism right now. It gives me some like bitter satisfaction as a Tennessee fan to see like the mm-hmm. evils converging. That's right. In the University of Connecticut. And for me, these kind of conversations like allow us to supersede, like we're talking about the career orientation of universities, the win orientation in sport and saying that other there are other things that matter that and, and we're seeing athletes and and faculty mm-hmm. choosing other value systems beyond careerism or wins and from a philosophical moral standpoint that is amazing to me and and even though she didn't get allowed to join the Nigerian team it sets a a, a, a plank in a, in a in a narrative whereby a next generation athlete might think differently about this entire political and moral economy of the IOC and Olympics. I mean, we're seeing it happening a little bit with, with high, high, high stakes um, men's basketball, where you got after Black Lives Matter, a couple of high profile blue chippers are deciding to go to black colleges instead of mm-hmm. going to the basketball machines like Kentucky or, you know, mm-hmm. other places or Duke. And that's, so that becomes a precedent for thinking differently. And, and, and helping to better endow and support these other schools that have their own problems too. They have their own class mm-hmm. stuff going on too, but just shifting the terrain around power and leverage. Um, and rethinking see- what's possible. Yeah, these seemingly um, benign arenas become these windows into much grander discussions of infrastructure and power. And that's what's interesting to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, well... This has been fantastic. We've gone way over. Thank you for Sorry. taking the time. No, this is probably going to be, a, we'll probably make this a two part, like a part one and part two, and that'll be great. Um, okay. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Nothing Never Happens, the Radical Pedagogy Podcast. On behalf of my co-producer and co-host, Lucia Holsether, I want to give special acknowledgement to our editor and audio engineer, Aaliyah Harris. I also want to thank our summer intern and director of communication and design, Percy Thompson. Our intro theme music is from Lance Eric Hagen with Aviva and the Flying Penguins. Our outro music is from a crisis from their CD, Unemployed Apologist. The song is called Tranquil Eyes, Her. It's available on bandcamp.com. Thank you for listening. And if you would like to support this podcast, we now have a Patreon account. We're at patreon at patreon.org slash radpedagogy. Thank you, and until next time. But 
all this is just a sideline to horniness Taste your sweat, become blind to the thoriness Your eyes are a blank wall where I scrawl Notes from my fall, my eyes looking with a forlorn Amazement at yours locked on mine despite the infinite displacement My fish in your barrel, my tadpole in your sparrow Where, oh, where is the narrow? There are no stupid questions that thought makes my fear grow it's on Mars, floating down ice flows with Kirsten Dunst. Chomsky gets beaten to a pulp by Nelson Muntz. Litter runs compensating by attaching prosthetic thoughts to their yearning crotch. It should be obvious that detachable dicks are more symptoms of the bull. Shit, 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 shit. The ecstasy of the unmatchable gifts is always available at a cost. The abyss is free and I like Ecstasy of the unmatchable gifts is always available at a cost. The abyss is free and I like being.